Hello and welcome back to Beyond Beale. As always, we're coming to you from the Mike Curb Institute at Rhodes College. I'm your host, Emma Jane Hopper. This is our third and final full-length episode of our inaugural season, covering the Memphis Country Blues Festival at the Levitt Shell in Overton Park. If you haven't listened to them yet, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode one and two. In episode one, we talked about the historical context of the festival. In episode two, we talked about the festival itself. And today, we're talking about its relevance to current events. You'll be hearing some new voices in this episode, including Natalie Wilson, who's been the executive director of The Shell since January of 2019. She talked to us about the festival and its lasting impact. That, to me, is one of the most impactful pieces of our history. I love everything about it. I think if you think about an event that was transformative in music during the the Civil Rights Movement, it was that. that empowered North Mississippi blues artists from from the country, the core, and gave them a platform and space. And I think amazing that the Shell's history could be part of that. The Shell was the space that launched that. We've heard a few different interpretations of the festival's importance over our season, but everyone agreed that it was special. Henry Nelson, who went to the festival as a teen, commented on the uniqueness of it all. You know, they that was unique in the sense that, you know, when I all the other shows I saw at the Shell after that, uh, where rock shows, groups like Trapeze and Mountain and the Allman Brothers and some of the other ones, but there was nothing like the Blues Festival. However, also years later, occasionally there would be one of the blues players who would be on stage, you know, just uh, as a single performer, but not as a festival uh, like that was that day. Augusta Palmer, documentarian and daughter of the festival founder Robert Palmer spoke of how casually it all started. But considering that it only lasted for a few years and considering that it started out with a 60-something dollar session check and a, and a ball of hash, I think considering those, those humble origins, it had a pretty huge impact. Chris Wimmer, one of the founders, complained about the city government's neglect for the history of country blues. I go down to Beale Street, and that's the saddest, shabbiest little, you know, one or two block strip with the same crap, and nothing has anything to do with with old Beale Street. You know, I I think um, I think if they had addressed it back then, I think the entire downtown area would be more vibrant and more vital than it is now. It's just now trying to come back around with some development on South Main and uh, a little bit up around the Pinch District and and whatnot. But uh, Memphis had no sense of history and no sense of, of history, not just with music, but, I mean, but with their architecture and everything, it just really had no no sense of history or appreciation of its past. Mr. Wimmer told us that neglect has been racially motivated. And a lot of that has to do with because of the fact that a lot of its past did hinge on on Black America, you know? 
W.C. Handy was all the only blues person with me growing up in the 50s, other than active players, you know, Howlin' Wolf and, and Muddy Waters and Vivian like that. But, you know, the only blues history ever mentioned by the city was W.C. Handy. I just think the downtown area could be could have been a much more vibrant and not have to spend, you know, 30, 40 years trying to play catch-up now. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it just turned into a, into a ghost town down there. Well, the festival began and ended in a politically contentious time, and its integration made a political statement, Dr. Palmer said the founders didn't have any explicit political intent. You know, there was a real separation between the politicos, the people who were going a po- more political route, and the people who are more into culture. So definitely um, the organizers didn't see themselves as part of a political movement or as part of the civil rights movement. They were certainly in favor of every advance made by the civil rights movement. And now in retrospect, I think talking to them, they realized that what they were doing was a political act, but they thought of it as a cultural and artistic act. And that was important to them because I think they felt the the political arena was so fraught with corruption and lies and kind of irredeemable. The focus of the festival was always the music. You remember Rick Whitney from episode one? He runs a talent management company and a music publishing company in L.A. Believing it was still relevant in today's political climate, he revived the festival with his cousin, Stephen Whitney, in 2017. You know, obviously there was a lot of strife in the late 60s. And, you know, to a large degree, there is still continued, you know, racial disconnect happening now. And, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, movements to get the police to treat African-American and Latino-Americans with, you know, more respect. Uh, Black Lives Matter movement. There's, you know, there are things that are still happening now that are extraordinarily important. Where I think there is a need for a better understanding of how certain individuals have a perspective in life, and the civil rights period was was certainly just that as well. The civil rights movement of the '60s was different from the civil rights movement going on today, though. Dr. Palmer said a major difference is in the vocabulary and awareness of white people. You know, now we have and talk about the idea of white privilege. And although white privilege was very much in action um, and maybe white saviorism to some extent at the blues festivals, people weren't really that aware of those concepts that white people weren't really that aware of those concepts then. A lot hasn't changed, too. The racism inherent to our system of policing hasn't seen much progress since the 60s. Mr. Nelson, for instance, got harassed by cops on the Rhodes College campus, then called Southwestern, just for being there while black. I had encounters with the police, and and they weren't physical encounters. They were just, what do you call it, verbal and malicious, and verbally. Um, I had encounters at Rhodes College when I, I used, it was an incredible culture of hippie and academics and and just different at, at Rhodes, there was, a, there was a culture that I loved. I didn't attend school there, but I was on campus a lot. And, you know, there were parties and there were people that I used to hang out with there. 
who are poets, you know, and writers. And, and even for the black kids who were on campus, I don't even know if it was security or police, even the, the security was prejudiced toward black kids on campus and who was on the campus kind of had to become friends and known. It wasn't like you could just be on campus and be black. As much as the festival meant to the people there, it wasn't reflective of the world around them. I'm, I'm an African-American. That's Mr. Whitney again. And I know that there's a level of uh, oppression and, 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 frankly, disrespect that has happened for quite a long time. And, you know, I've, I've felt it and experienced it personally in my life. I was born and raised in Memphis. I've got family that lives in Memphis. Um, but I no longer live in Memphis. There's an affinity and love I have for the city. But that said, I think I could see people having a stigma because Memphis has been segregated for quite a while. And there's a, there's a long history of that segregation. There's a long history that has to be overcome. I do think that the city has gotten better. It's okay that the festival didn't have an overarching impact on racism in Memphis, though. That wasn't its purpose. They weren't in it to make money or to change the world. They just wanted to listen to some old country blues legends play. Mr. Whitney said that he wanted to keep that in mind for the new festival. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about, you know, turning it into some sort of um, economic thing. It was like, we got we want to present this music. Yeah. And, you know, the, the cool part was that it was diverse in, in the presentation of it. And, you know, it obviously it didn't stick in terms of being able to offer it year over year. But, you know, it, it spawned my cousin and I to look at its approach years later. And I think, you know, that in itself is also interesting. Ms. Wilson said that reaching all of Memphis is the Levitt Shell's biggest goal. Um, we're also working um, with a national consultant that focuses on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and doing some real strategic planning around DEI um, for the organization and for our community. But what equity is about is meeting people where they are, that everyone, different abilities, different perspectives, everyone should be respected to where they are. And we as a place like the Shell should have something that supports them where they are, that they feel that they that they can be themselves and that they are um, valued by who they are, where they are, what they're, you know, who in, innately what their needs are. The Shell is a nonprofit, and it's always been a community gathering place. Just like the Memphis Country Blues Festival gathered a diverse group of people from all over, Mr. Whitney's Revival aims to do the same thing. And I think that it was just something where we saw it as an interesting opportunity to revitalize the festival, uh, largely because we thought it was a way to bring people together. And, you know, music has always been a uniting force in that respect. And Memphis has a long history of the of blues music. And we really just wanted to find an opportunity to use music, use the legacy of the Country Blues Festival to, to do something that would be a uh, kind of a galvanizing force. So we ultimately ended up um, revitalizing the festival in 2017 for the, the first First time that festival uh, was held at the Levitt Shell. The the headliner uh, for that festival was uh, Reverend John Wilkins, who just recently passed, uh, unfortunately. And he was obviously involved with the earlier festivals as well. So that was sort of a nice connection and through line between the, the late 60s festivals and us doing it in 2017. Like his predecessors, Mr. Whitney and his cousin aren't in it for the money. They're in it for the music. 
right now we're doing it in conjunction with the show. So uh, to be frank, there's my cousin and I, as the promoters here, we aren't making any money from this. This is more, you know, our love for the music here. We wanted to get it off the ground in the, in the proper way. Another parallel to the 60s festival is the lack of city involvement. The Shell is privately funded, although it did partner with the city back in 2005 to do renovations. I had always been a um, fan of the Shell, um, was a friend on the lawn for years, and I would sit there and think, does my taxpayer dollars make all this possible? It's, it's magic. And then I came in last year and realized everything about the Shell is about local private investment, not taxpayer dollars. It's all local investors who believe in the work that we do. That was Ms. Wilson. Despite its private funding, she said the Shell is open to all. Everybody has a place at the Shell. Everybody has a voice at the Shell. And we want to ha- we focus on a real diverse genre of music presented every year in making the performing arts accessible to everyone. The current version of the festival is free to attend, adding to this idea of accessibility. Mr. Whitney spoke about the changes they made for the summer of 2020 in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. We did the virtual festival most recently as a fundraiser for the Shell you know, just where people could donate from a tip standpoint back to the shell and just help them with their continued operations. Ultimately, um, you know, the this is a festival that we'd like to keep at the shell just because it's it has a history there. So, you know, not to say that it may not it change from, a, from an economic standpoint in terms of how we present it in, you know, future iterations, but the goal would be that we keep it, you know, free for the, uh, for fans and for people to be able to come out and, you know, continue to enjoy the music at the Shell, just similarly to what Shell does for their other free concert series. This online show may have reached more people than an in-person one. Despite the Shell's efforts, Ms. Wilson said there are still roadblocks in the way of complete accessibility. Last year, I met a mother. Um, she has three children, and she lives in Orange Mound. And she said, I've always wanted to come to the Shell. She said, but one time, I tried to come, and I got off the bus on Poplar, and I came to your concert, and your concert was over at nine. I got back on the bus, and half of my, my route was already um, turned off. I mean, it was already stopped. I couldn't get home. According to Miss Wilson, racist federal policy has also dissuaded people from visiting the Shell in a way that even the policy of the 60s didn't. I have a board member, Marcus Vila, and we talk a lot about, um, you know, how the Latino community, Latina X community feels about you know, going to public gathering spaces like parks because of ice raids, you know, they come and they're terrified that something's going to happen to their family when they come. And that's a two, that's another example. We can't just say, you know, come to us, come to us. And then they don't know how to park. They're scared. They don't feel, will they be welcome? Robert Gordon told us that the cultural divide of today is not unlike that of the original festival's era. A lot of this stuff is very comparable to the present political moment where People are living in disconnected realities, bubbles, you know, believing what they're told and not opening the door and going, well, let's see it. Ms. Wilson said she hopes the shell can play a part in healing that divide. We are a nonprofit public gathering space. I want to speak in love that the messages on the shell were most important, that we are hurt, we are angry, we are divided, and we must come together. There's a dialogue and an understanding that needs to happen. And it's important in terms of being able to bridge some of the um, some of the things that have happened and getting people to better understand how to move forward and do things that are that are more uh, egalitarian. When people are pressed 
yes, you do see protests. You do see people stand up for their rights. And, you know, the, the odd part, I think, is that, you know, we had a, a spring with the uh, George Floyd death, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, things that have happened, in, you know, in addition to, you know, sort of the, the feelings that were happening with COVID that I think gave people a moment to say, wait a minute, we need to really look at what's happening. And again, this, it, it wasn't that this, these things were new. These things have been happening for quite a while. It was just a moment, I think, where the, the confluence of all of it happening at once got people and sort of began a, a movement in a different way. That was Mr. Whitney. The Black Lives Matter movement he's alluding to is an ongoing addition to the historical timeline of civil rights protests. While the original Memphis Country Blues Festival wasn't a civil rights rally, its significance as an integrated event tells us a lot about Memphis in the 60s. The BLM protests of today tell us a lot about how little things have changed for Black Americans. I think it's a great place to start a conversation about civil rights and the, the cultural achievement of African-American artists and their huge influence on American music as a whole, but also on the possibility of those movements being kind of co-opted and absorbed into and taken up by the white mainstream and leaving African-Americans behind. Dr. Palmer spoke to us about the original Memphis Country Blues Festival's place in the history of the fight for civil rights. One problem the festival perpetuated was the idea that Black music is source material for young white artists. In this narrative, Booker White and Furry Lewis were quote-unquote paving the way for white people to base rock and roll off of, ignoring Black rock and rollers and young Black blues artists. As white people, first of all, I think we need to acknowledge our privilege and think about what we can do to change our society, to make it more equitable, but that also... We need to be able to come to a conversation and be willing to talk across and work through cultural difference as well as power differences. Ms. Wilson echoed this idea of unity through both conversation and the acknowledgement of white privilege. To say, you don't know me, I don't know you, but I want to know you. I know I'm a white woman and I, and I can't, I, I have a white privilege that you know, I know I do. And I want to use my privilege for good. And how can I help you? How can I build a relationship with you? How can I listen to what you want to say? Part of the Shell's mission is to teach younger generations about Memphis's rich music history. We would have a a music educator that would be building relationships in these neighborhoods and making, you know, space, you know, where we would go. Then building a curricula around music heritage and um, how the Shell's part of that. And what is you know, what is music heritage? What is the importance of that music education for children? Showcasing children, families, what music is about, different genres of music, making it fun, accessible, make it family-friendly, healthy, um, wholesome. The coverage of this history isn't perfect. Important figures and details are still left out of the narrative. That's not to say that people wouldn't be interested in it if they had access to it, according to Mr. Whitney. I do know that there's there is a little bit of a disconnect and you know i think that there are there are venues there's promoters there's you know the memphis has a rich history of music and i think that there's a 
an opportunity for the city to be able to capitalize on that and present Memphis in a, an even greater light, particularly as it relates to uh, music and entertainment. You know, I would personally love to be able to see the city present, you know, music in a greater light where people found it, you know, oh my gosh, I'm coming to Memphis because there's there's a fantastic music scene there and there's a fantastic, you know, festival scene there. And, you know, I, I can't wait to come in and spend the weekend. And, you know, from a tourism perspective, I think it could be, you know, a huge, a huge boom for the city. Earl the Pearl Banks, a blues legend himself, spoke to the importance of the genre, even if it doesn't pay well. After, if you leave the blues, you leave the blues, you ain't got nothing. This stuff, they, uh, this rap stuff they got, they making money off that stuff. But you you can't make that kind of money off of blues on read. Mr. Nelson also said that country blues remains an under-recognized and under-rewarded genre. You know, I, I think this was, um, I, I would even wonder today how are the, um, how, how prosperous country blues artists really are. There are a few. You know, Valerie June is an exception, but she is one of she is one of that generation. I don't know if you know who Valerie is. Yeah, but Valerie June, I think she is, she's probably the fifth generation of country blues artists who's really making a living at it. One way we as music listeners may be able to rectify that is through conscientious consumership, according to Dr. Palmer. We can think about you know where we spend our dollars and who we want them to go to and and think about the the inequality and the the abuse of a lot of performers blues performers african american performers in general over many decades in the music industry private individuals have sway beyond the voting booth the phrase vote with your wallet comes to mind That's something to consider, especially when it seems like all the landmark legislation of the 60s hasn't amounted to much in practice. For a lot of Black Americans, it feels like nothing's changed substantially since then. I never trusted what, and I still don't actually sometimes, what will happen because of um, the skin I'm in. That's unfortunate. That's so disappointing, you know, Um, at this point in life. That's Mr. Nelson. I do have hope because it's your generation and, and black and white and Asian and whatever who, whose experience hopefully is one of being witness of what has happened and knowing that you have the, um, the potential to change how the world is. You literally can change the world. And we believe that too. And I think we did to some degree. The Memphis Country Blues Festival was important, but what made it important depends on who you ask. From far away, you might see it as a protest or an intentional act of civil disobedience. Up close, however, it was a hippie gathering that broke boundaries without a grand purpose other than the music. It's easy to superimpose a higher meaning onto the past, though, and I think a lot of people want that higher meaning. You might want to think everything has a predestined purpose and a clear path building up to now, but in reality, history is pretty chaotic, just like the festival. Whether or not the statement they made was an accident, the festival was still integrated in a time most venues in Memphis weren't. It showcased a significant part of the Memphis music legacy, the country blues, in a city where the government was disinterested in promoting its black past. That's why we chose to feature the festival in our first season. 
The goals of the Memphis Country Blues Society then were not unlike our own now. Thank you so much for tuning in to the final episode of this season of Beyond Beale, the Mike Curb Institute's Memphis Music History Podcast. Next season, we'll be talking about women in the Memphis punk scene, so be sure to follow the Curb Institute and the Dredge Zine on Instagram, as well as the Beyond Beale Instagram to be the first to know when that comes out. Thank you to the interviewees featured in today's program in order of appearance, Natalie Wilson, Henry Nelson, Augusta Palmer, Chris Wimmer, Rick Whitney, Robert Gordon, and Earl the Pearl Banks. Thanks also to Jimmy Crossweight and Daddy Magor, who have been featured in previous episodes. Today's episode was written and produced by myself and Elijah Matlock with help from our faculty advisor, Dr. J. Tyler Fritz. Elijah is also our audio engineer. The original music for today's program was created by Cam Napier. Thank you to Betsy John and Shalise Barzani for our gorgeous cover art. I'm your host, Emma Jane Hopper. See you soon and stay safe.